it's always about the story. It's uh, building empathy about what are the problems we're solving. It's much, much more powerful than the pure spreadsheet with numbers and saying, look, I do 100 today, I do 150 tomorrow. As a founder, you have to be very, very good with the storytelling because you need to tell it a hundred times before somebody say yes. If you don't understand that, I'm not sure you'll survive here too. Welcome to another episode of Speak Like a CEO. My name is Oliver Aust. I'm the CEO of EOPS Communications, a best-selling author. And my guest today is Mark Alexander Christ, and he's the co-founder of SumUp. SumUp is a London-based fintech company, but it's so much more. And you've probably used them many, many times, even if you may not have realized it. Maybe if you bought a coffee in your local coffee shop, or if you went to an independent store or salon, you've certainly used SumUp. Mark, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me, Oliver. Great to be on the show. Yeah, I mean, you guys, uh, you've been around for 10 years now. You reached unicorn status a few years ago, if I understand this correctly. And give us an idea of the scale of the company today. So maybe as a quick introduction on what we do. We started 10 years ago with the idea of helping small businesses to run their business and started by focusing on payments. So when Oliver says you've seen us in a small coffee shop, it's not because we have the best coffee in the world, but because we have the small white device that actually allows you to pay by card. And uh, we do this um, in 34 markets, so pretty global in scale. That's the whole of Europe, uh, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and the United States. Um, and we serve three and a half million merchants across the world with our solution. And as, as I said, 10 years ago, we started with payments and really focus on payments and build a very good uh, machine on the payment space. And more recently, in the last uh, three, four years, we actually realized that our merchants have many more challenges that we can help them with. And we branched out into software services, which includes the POS uh, or online stores or invoicing accounting solutions, as well as into financial services, where we actually uh, offer a business account and a card to small merchants and also do a little bit of lending. Yeah, that, that, that's very interesting because I think your initial ambition was to be the first ever global card acceptance brand and you've branched out. And has that to do with the rise of mobile payment solutions as well? Because maybe cards in 10 years, who knows whether we're still using cards, may all be part of the, you know, another application we haven't even heard of, but smartphone for sure. So first, we want to help small merchants to actually accept cards. And when we started out 10 years ago, there was a, a pretty big moment that we actually were able to do this because with the cell phone, and the internet at the point of sale, small merchants finally had like a supercomputer at the point of sale that you could connect the card reader through. But I think what you're hinting at, payment is unfortunately a very slow industry um, with the in innovation taking place very, very slowly before merchants and customers get there. We see this in the United States or in Asia where these mobile payment solutions are a little bit more prevalent. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to also welcoming this more in the markets that we're in, because in the end, we want to be the acceptance solution for small merchants, um, whether that's today a card, tomorrow a QR code, or in the future you pay with your fingerprint, your eye scan, whatever the payment means of the future is. Because as a small merchant, you do want one technology provider that allows you all payment needs, because the payment kind is, is very much decided by the end customer. So we are the ones that aggregate all of the payments for you and basically help you to uh, to basically be competitive in the market. I have lots of questions about, you know, how you communicate and reach actually over 3 million B2B customers and, you know, not to mention your thousands of employees. But maybe before we dive into that, um, tell us a little bit about more, more about yourself, Mark. So what, what's your background and uh, what's some of your first business? So I actually finished university 
um, back in 2001, 2002, which many of you will not remember anymore, but that was right after the dot-com bubble, um, which means the whole startup world was very, very slow or was uh, kind of um, uh, forsaken as a, as a good try that didn't work out. So I did what makes every mother proud. I went into banking and did investment banking uh, for a number of years. Um, first in New York uh, doing real estate investments and then in, in Europe doing real estate securitization, which then with the next uh, major bubble, the real estate bubble, that one ended as well um, after six, seven years in that industry. And then through accident, I came to Berlin to a small startup called City Deal that literally just launched, um, which we then sold to Groupon six months later um, and becoming one of the fastest growing companies across the world. And from there, I realized that there's plenty of opportunity in the internet. Um, then started a small fashion store, helping small small fashion uh, designers to basically go online and interact with their end customers and also sell online. That was a outright failure. So not everything on the internet is made out of gold. And from there, I then met my co-founder, Daniel, that had the idea of doing some up helping also small merchants accept card payments. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. And, and what part of the business do you focus on that summer? Well, as a founder, you have the the, the luxury and uh, the, the problem that you focus on all kinds of the, of the business. So my co-founder is actually the CEO. Um, I'm the CFO, so I'm closer to all of the number and the financial uh, portions. Uh, but then there's also so much more stuff you can always do. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I want to ask you in particular about your, how do you reach and how do you win over millions of small businesses to become customers? And there's definitely a need, there's definitely a problem you're solving and, and have solved for 10 years now. But how do you actually convince them? Because there's so many and where do you even start? Historically, payments has been very much a luxury product. Because the way this was set up with a physical phone connection and somebody coming to your store, physically installing the device, also doing the whole onboarding in person, paper-based, that just made the whole process very, very expensive, which also meant that it focused much more on larger merchants. So if you were the, the head of a supermarket chain or a department store, then you had like significant volume where the incumbent players were providing you a decent volume on. But the long tail was very, very much left behind on this one. And you already mentioned the becoming the first ever global card acceptance brand because in the past, this luxury payment product was only targeting a small part of the market that was very much sales-driven because at this amount of money you made in these large merchants, there was basically a personal sales representative. Now, when you think about the, the small merchant space, we actually believe that 10% of any population should accept card payments. And that for... Uh, let's say Europe, there's probably like 20 million small merchants uh, across Europe, or even even 30 million if you think about the informal sector a bit more. That actually now gives you a population that rather than having a sales kind of a relationship, you can pivot to much more of a marketing relationship. So for us, we were, were always very, very big on differentiating our product. So even if you might not know the name SumUp, if I tell you the wide square device at the point of sale, that one definitely rings a bell. And also for merchants, our offer was always to make this very, very simple. So there's no, no monthly contract. There's no complicated fee structure. There's very uh, simple technology. So you literally can buy the card reader online uh, for 20 pounds, have it delivered to your home, start using it the next day, and only pay a flat percentage if and when you use it. And that just made the whole value proposition very, very simple to merchant, very easy to communicate. 
And I think that's how we won the market. Now, that's interesting. I mean, because the device itself is part of the branding. And as you said, you know, just making it available easily online for 20 years or so, that, that that's genius. I still wonder how you get that snowball rolling. I can see how it then spreads because your know, merchants talk to each other. There's word of mouth. We see it in other stores. and That could be useful. But, but how do you get the snowball started? So, I mean, as a small company, first of all, you go out yourself and you speak to merchants. Because, and with yourself, I mean the founder and the management team and everybody in the company, because only by speaking, engaging to merchants, you even understand what kind of problems they have, how they perceive the solution, and how you kind of craft the whole story and the communication around the merchants. And now I've been uh, pitching the solution to uh, uh, merchants for 10 years after every dinner or every any purchase at a small store, um, where my girlfriend's already annoyed with that one. Um, so you figure out pretty fast which are the two sentences that you somehow should place for the merchant say, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, maybe I'll give you a call sometimes or come to your website. What, what two sentences are these? Yeah, I think it depends very much on the merchants. Um, so you kind of, the, the better you understand the environment, usually simplicity is always great. Uh, being very affordable is always great. People still think that card payments is a very expensive one. Um, not having any, uh, any uh, how to say, any commitment in terms of an ongoing contract and so on. Um, so just the whole trying this out. I I even give you the terminal for free for a couple of months uh, to try this out. Um, that just makes it very easy to to convert there. And from then we actually um, because I came from Groupon, obviously the feet on the street is the way to go. So we set up a relatively large uh, uh, sales network way too early, which actually worked out pretty pretty well but was way too expensive for the revenue we, we made from our merchants. So you got the device into merchants' hands, you got them to use it, but the economics just never made sense because our small merchants don't produce enough revenue. And from them, we actually then pivoted and said, we have to make this work more in a marketing game and then focused very much on marketing communication in order to get the merchants on board and have really, really I think, built one of the best small merchant acquisition machines in the industry or actually in any b2b industry out there because what we're doing is pretty much unheard of yeah this is very interesting because it, it really resonates with me that you have to go out and talk to your customer understand them and hone the message so you reach message market fit and can convince them with two sentences but you also do things that don't scale right so in that process you do things like walking door to door and having like local salespeople. i think this is for fintech it's quite uh, quite a revelation um so what was the next stage then how did you you said that marketing machine how did that look like so it's i mean it's it's very much um optimizing the whole flows so one thing is our product is relatively simple so i can show you an ad in your facebook stream and you will understand it's a card reader no fixed fee i pay one and a half percent and i can buy it for 20 euros and it fits nicely in my business and does everything i need to do that portion is easy but then getting to the website and getting them through the whole sign up flow because don't forget we're a regulated business so we need to open something like a small bank account for small uh, for small merchants, also do the regulatory onboarding in the background and keep the onboarding flow as simple as possible while at the same time getting all of that things covered. Have you buy the card reader, ship it to you the next day in the mail for you to then start accepting it, understanding how you connect to the card reader to your phone that you need to download the app and all of those things. Then as a startup, you, you go with like a, this is what I believe the process is. 
and then of a hundred people, three make it to the end, and then you, <laughs> you see where the different drop-off points are. Yeah. From did I understand the ad? Did I go through the sign-up flow? Do I get the card reader? Do I start transacting? Also because you get the card reader, and then you're not necessarily confident enough of a merchant that this is a good solution. So you do a transaction yourself, and you see, okay, I get the money to my bank account the next day. It seems like they're not fraudsters. Then you show it to your wife or husband, um, then it also works and you get a positive reaction and then you put it in front of the first customer and if then works and the customer says, oh, you're a very innovative merchant, amazing that you have the solution, then you start being proud of it and then you really start using this and you basically look at this whole flow and keep on looking at the breakpoints and the friction in the process and try to make it easier and easier to make sure that a larger portion of merchants makes it through from beginning to end. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that's what's often underestimated. How many people do you need to get your offer in front of to get some little trigger coming out of the funnel at the end, especially in the beginning. And once you build the social capital in the market, it's, it's a different story. But in the beginning, you need to just get it in front of a lot of people. And, and this is working pretty well until the present day. Or has anything shifted over the last few years in terms of your communications and marketing messaging? Well, I think... We, we 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 optimized and perfectionated the story on the payments piece because for 10 years we are doing the best payment acceptance for small merchants and we are now shifting more and more to explain to merchants that we have many more products that they can get to so i think in terms of new merchant acquisition we're still strong on the on the payments at the point of sale kind of solution but once you are some merchant we're now starting to communicate and say look, welcome on board, here's your card reader, please start using it. However, if you now need a POS system, um, look, there's also a very simple uh, opt-in that we can offer you this one top two clicks, then you can open an online store. Here we have an invoicing accounting solution. We already get your money basically from the end customer to us and we pay it out to you. However, we could also keep it in a sum-up account that has an IBAN that you can also use to run your business. We also give you a card to run your business um, and so on. And basically communicating that we are the, the technology and the financial service provider to the merchant and not only the payment provider. That's a shift that we are undertaking that actually takes quite some time because it's, it's a quite complicated. Both when you shouldn't forget starting this communication internally in the company to then also get this externally into merchant's hands. So we have the saying going from a one-trick pony to a multi-product company mm -hmm. is actually quite a, a, quite a challenge, so to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. You mentioned the internal audience as well. So you have uh, two, 3,000 employees, is that correct? 3,000 employees. In many, many different markets, partly through acquisition, right? So you acquired a company, uh, five stars in the US and I think some others. So how is that process internally from a small company You, you were there from day one as one of the founders to 3,000 people in many different markets today. So first of all, you start a lot with a vision and mission and uh, and what you want to offer to merchant, what you want to be towards merchant. And also very important is the company culture. So I think the first five, six years, we didn't focus too much on it because we were a smaller team. So by just by working together, this, all of this became very, very intuitive and uh, we just build a strong culture without knowing this. And I think for me personally, the first time I realized is when we merged with one of our competitors in 2016, uh, a company called Peleven, out of the, the, the rocket environment, that uh, we they, they did exactly the same thing we did. And uh, then there was uh, 
uh, we, we sold as a merger, but it was actually, to be honest, more of a more of a takeover. And that's when you really realized how how the same companies can have very very different cultures. And from then on, we invested a lot in times of communicating how we see our values, how we want to work together, how we want to communicate, uh, how how we want to be open, transparent, and so on. Um, and I think that's something we are, we're doing relatively well. I think when you we have a, obviously a lot of new joiners in the company, so there's a very good onboarding program, um, which takes like a week or so, in which we share our history, where we come from, what our values are, and all of those things to really make sure that uh, you, you kind of get the direction when you join, but then it's always very, very important Then you live this in the day-to-day and really uh, walk the talk um, in order for people to realize um, that that's how we want to do this. What was the point of the point of most friction when you merged with or acquired the other companies in terms of the culture internally? What was the biggest difference? <sighs> say, I I think uh, I'd say the 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 Pelevin looked more like the British Army. Everything was nicely organized, and you had like great compartments. And I think Summer was more the the pirates that uh, kind of entered entered the well organized boat and. Uh, I would say at the at the beginning of the week, I was slightly nervous because the British Army looks pretty, uh, um, I say, uh, imposing <laughs> when you look at them. Um, but then through very good communication, good relationships, and uh, say a very efficient way to do things within SumUp, by the end of the week, we had a very good control of the ship and knew very very well what what to focus on, where the where the issues were, what we needed to change. And so on, and uh, kind of, uh, yeah, entered. Yes, <laughs> can imagine. Is, is storytelling important in, internally and externally? It's super important. That's, I mean, that, that's like the the most important, if not the only tool you have for people to understand uh, where to go and what to do. And that's also something you need to realize because when you when you do this in a small company, like for us, for the first five six years, you do this much more organically without even thinking about it um and then you kind of the 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 the, the you forget this a little bit and then you kind of need to uh, let's say realize and, and 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 remind everybody that this is like the tool that really builds the culture and explains where we want to go and how we want to communicate yeah i couldn't agree more i mean um gary mcgowan a couple of weeks ago on the podcast said uh founders basically have two roles build shit and tell stories i think that that really sums it up nicely can you give us an example of how you use storytelling mm-hmm. at some up like day to day or you know when there's a big announcement or you know something that comes to mind I think there's all there's like a ton of stories all day and every day. And we we have the 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 terrible events with the war in Ukraine two weeks ago. And we actually are very uh, we have like thirty five thirty four summer us actually sitting in Ukraine. So there was an amazing even without thinking for a second there was like a drive of people coming to help and kind of living our values in I don't know organizing transportation routes. Uh, hotels, stays, pickups at the border, um, getting money to people and basically helping them all around and all of this like very organically organized just because the, the let's say, the, the mindset and the, the stories and how we do things, it's just stuff we're doing naturally. 
Mm, yeah. Do you think that enough founders and companies understand the importance of storytelling? I would think so. At least the ones that survive should understand this. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I definitely all all the good ones and all the ones that have been around for a couple of years totally. should understand this really really well. Um, if you don't understand it, I'm not sure you survive here too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Also in fundraising, you're very experienced in fundraising, and there are probably some learnings that maybe younger founders and startups can can you know learn from you. How, how what have you? What are the key learnings from your f massive fundraising rounds over the years? Also when it comes to storytelling, it's always about the story. It's 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 the the I mean investors are also humans, so they they do need to understand. What the, what's the vision? Where do you want to go to? Where do you coming from? How are you tackling problems? And what are the the merchants you want to help? So already kind of putting them in the merchant shoes, building empathy about what what are the problems we're solving for merchants is much much more powerful than the pure spreadsheet with numbers and saying look I do 100 today I do 150 tomorrow, and then uh, everything will be amazing at the end of the year. Um, that's the the I think the stories around it are much more powerful on that. Yeah, I agree, and I think the the investors also want to see that the founders can actually deliver a story, not just that there is a story, but they can tell it because they know they will have to tell it so many times and persuade customers, uh, prospects, employees, uh, candidates, and so on to to go with them on that journey. And any other learnings um, from your fundraising that people should take to heart? I, I think what you just said, as a founder, you have to be very very good with the storytelling. Because you need to tell it a hundred times before somebody say yes. So just the 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 pure pure nature, your idea will probably not sound great um, when you start out. So you need to tell it to a lot of people and be very resilient and very persistent in your story. Then also get the first people on board and keep on kind of kind of telling the same story and being consistent in the story, because the people it somehow needs to be ingrained, and uh, you really need to have your recruiter. Uh, your middle management, actually every frontline engine uh, uh, person, you need to have them tell the same story, share the same vision, and understand where we go. Especially because we we set up the company very decentralized with a lot of uh, empowerment to people. So you have a lot of small teams that have like submissions to the big mission. And if they don't understand the big picture and where we want to go and what the story is, then it's very difficult for them to take decisions that are aligned with the bigger strategy. And because we push down a lot of the the, the decision making, that's like super critical. Yeah, yeah that makes that makes sense. Let's come back to MA and your expansion into America, for instance. So you have a lot of, as you said, you're very decentralized, you have a lot of offices and you have this big uh, acquisition in the in the United States. So how does that influence uh, your business internally and externally? What, what, I, what I'm trying to grasp is, um, does the same message, the same approach work in Europe, the United States, and Asia, because your message is universal about small merchants, or are there things you have to adapt? So I think, first of all, when you think about the M&A, obviously we buy uh, companies that somehow fit our overall ecosystem. So we acquired, for example, a couple of uh, POS players, Tiller and Goodtill, year and a half ago we bought a small online uh, online store companies and so on and more recently we bought a, a loyalty and cm system called five stars and what's always very important is that we have a good cultural fit and these companies are still very much founder-led and the founder shares our dna and our our drive to do things so as a as an example we had the 
uh, one of our internal uh, aims is to turn transactions into interactions because nobody wants to pay. You want to buy something or get a service and we want to make the whole payment uh, transparent and move it to the background. So we had this turn transactions into interactions saying and then five stars we bought, uh, we bought and their vision was to turn transactions into relationships. So relationship interactions, it's relatively close and it's uh, it was pretty amazing to see how the founder of Five Stars was able to take the sum up culture deck and literally just uh, 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 use this in, in internal presentation without changing a thing and without changing the story and just kind of change the logo and the layout of the slides uh, in there. And that obviously makes the whole thing much, much easier. And I think related is your question to different different uh, nationalities or different geographies. I think even within Europe, um, the, I mean, France, Germany, Italy, the UK, they all have very distinct cultures in themselves. Small merchants have uh, very much the same problem. Um, they're underserved from a technology point of view and they need to invest in that space and have solutions to help them run their business. But I think how you communicate to them and how you go to market always has slightly different nuances on how you communicate to the merchant. Now if you go to the other end of the world and you start communicating to a small merchant in the jungle in Brazil or in the, in the Atacama Desert in uh, uh, Chile or anywhere across that um, continent, that's the whole different kind of go-to-market, how to communicate to merchants and so on. So we actually, for Europe, we're doing this relatively centralized, always with national uh, people from different nationalities. So we do have this cultural flavor, but more like one go-to-market. Well, then the one for LATAM, we did completely separately, um, obviously closer to the market, uh, adapting the product more and so on. Um, but the, the amazing thing is that now with the size we're at, um, I'm traveling to different, we have like 20 offices, 20 different offices across the, the world. And I've actually been in Chile three weeks ago and uh, met like 160 Chileans that share very much the summer DNA and the summer values and how we think about doing things, um, which is kind of amazing to see how you end up at the other end of the world, um, kind of having a, a same cultural fit and the same, uh, same background on how to do things. Yeah, and I think because you're so clear about your culture and there's a culture deck and it's been honed for years, I think that makes, that ensures in a way that you um, attract the right people, right? So people rule themselves in and out if they hear and understand the culture. And if you include the culture in your hiring process, uh, then it becomes a magnet in the sense that it attracts the right people and deters the, the people who may not be a good fit. Indeed. I think that's like super important to make sure. I think we, especially in our in our onboarding, we do have um, obviously the whole uh, qualification check and so on, but we actually have um, a dedicated interview to cultural fit in order to make sure that somebody also outside of the team, because if, if you're hiring for your team, you might be uh, you know, under pressure to fill the position uh, and think, okay, from the qualification point of view, it's exactly what I know or need and we'll be fine in the culture. So we're actually making sure that there's a person outside of the team that does like a cultural interview to make sure that they don't have any stakes in the position and just make sure that we look for a check for cultural fit and make sure that cultural fit is the is the right thing to do. And it's actually one one thing we, we just learned what what our team in Chile does, that we're now thinking about more 
in a to do this across the company. When you think about the job qualification versus the cultural qualification, we're actually going to a default of no. So we're not going to hire you unless you have a very strong yes on culture or a very strong yes on qualification and at least a good yes on culture and the other way around. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you need both, right? And uh, it's interesting. Where, where in the process does the culture interview fit in? Is it early? Is it a last check? It's, it's more like a last check because we actually expect all of the other teams to uh, all of the other team members to do this check for this as well. So ideally, if you if you're the first and uh, the first recruiter interview and you already figure out that this will not fly in the in the cultural fit check, then you shouldn't get there. And the the ambition is actually to make everybody in sum up a cultural ambassador um, to do this. So when uh, when you have like a small team that kind of passes on too many people to the culture check uh, that then fails, then obviously we do. M- some more training uh, on on the team to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore, and you you kind of sp- spot earlier what we're looking for. Yeah, yeah. So it, you, you guys obviously got a lot right, uh, but you know you don't build a company like this over ten years without encountering the occasional speed bump. So, uh, what was the biggest communications crisis you faced over the decade? Oh, there have been plenty over the. <laughs> Or the, I mean, we ha- we 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 had we had the direct sales team that didn't work out. That unfortunately we had to let go. We actually moved to Russia at some point uh, and tried to open the Russian market, which didn't necessarily work uh, work out according to plan. We've also been uh, cash strapped a couple of times over the years, where uh, it felt like in 2012, 13, um, there was a lot of excitement in the market. And we raised some very good rounds, and then in 14, 15, all the investors either already placed their bets into us or one of our competitors or didn't see the traction as fast as they expected. Um, so then we had to do a couple of redundancy rounds just out of financial necessary necessities, which are always terrible when you have to say goodbye to people um, because the, the you didn't estimate the growth of the company uh, properly. Um, so those things are always, uh, let's say, I think pretty big speed bumps and pretty painful. Yeah, absolutely. How how did you deal with those from a communications perspective? What did you learn? That's a, the, I would say uh, I, I I learned more, but so it's it's all it's always very very important to be authentic and be close to the people and and explain what's going on and why you do things you do. Um, and we actually had to do one more recently, where we really kind of failed on the whole communication. To be honest. But it was still during Corona, so people were in home office, so we weren't able to do the full communication, somehow tell the right story, and that led to uh, a lot of disappointment. It took us quite some time to kind of uh, recover from that and, and somehow rebuild the trust. What can you pass on as learning um, you know, from those experiences? Because I, I'm sure you went into this, okay, we are authentic, we are transparent, and still probably it didn't quite work according to plan. It's, I think it's important to build empathy, um, understanding where what's what's the the level of information and the understanding and the belief uh, is that everybody has, and somehow pick up the people in that story um, and kind of finish that story uh, properly. I think that's the and and it's also not a fast way to do. It's not like you can do this brilliant fifteen minute speech and then everything is done, but you somehow need to engage with people. And I think also it's, it's always very much easier to engage with smaller groups of people. So rather than just standing in front of a thousand people and say, look, this is what it is, um, try to somehow 
testers with smaller smaller groups of people uh, get the messaging right. Uh, somehow find some more ambassadors to 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 kind of, kind of help you carry on the story and so on. Those are all very important things to do there. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a very important lesson. I think that if you before you speak to big group of employees that you test the message because what often happens is it's crafted and it may sound good but like any message it's a hypothesis and it needs to it needs to land it needs to resonate with the audience and that's that testing that is so important not just when it comes to message market fit for the product but also when it comes to crisis communications and other critical issues internally mm -hmm. Exactly. What's the biggest communications challenge you face at the moment? The biggest communication challenge we face at the moment. It's actually, I have I have a funny similar story to that one um, because I can't really come up with a big communication challenge. But it's a uh, say we we use a framework throughout Summer, which is the uh, co-create, sell, tell, and so on framework, and. Uh, this comes very natural to people that have been at Summer but a long time, where rather than somebody taking a decision, you somehow co-create it in a smaller round and then test it with, a, with people around you. And now we realize that as we want to become more of a learning organization and make sure we pass on all of the skills that we have in Summer and how we do things, we actually put together a co-create session like how, how this whole framework works, like a 20-minute internal uh, presentation. And then uh, a very senior colleague that joined us recently came to me and said, Mark, this is amazing. I'm so glad I listened to this and now I understand this. Until yesterday, I thought someone was just sitting around, they keep on talking all day uh, and nobody, <laughs> nobody tells you what to do. And now I understand this is by design because this makes for more powerful decisions. And thereby, I can go much more into that uh, into that flow and somehow drive this thing rather than just sitting there and saying, what's, what's going on there? And I think this is the whole becoming a learning organization, passing on these small stories and making sure that people understand what we do, how we do things, how we perceive leadership, what's mastery and all of those things. I think that's a very big challenge that we have in front of us. I'm always saying... We're doing this definitely uh, at the level of uh, of companies with like three, four, five hundred people. So we are much better than other companies at five or three thousand people of size. Um, but I think if you have a hundred people company, you can still outrun us and do this far better than than us. So we want to invest in in very much this this uh, sum of university and kind of passing on how to do things so that every decentralized empowered tribe or group. Uh, can bring this company forward. Uh, I think at your stage, that's really critical, isn't it? That um, how do you protect the things that are good about a small, young company, but still get the upside of the the big company with the reach and, and market power you have? So if you can get those and keep those together, then mm -hmm. you you know that's a great combination. Yeah. That's definitely the challenge for the future. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I can see how that that is a critical junction now, and and one that doesn't end, right? So you always have to keep at it. And I remember when I was at EasyJet at that phase, and we had up to I don't know, a few thousand people to ten thousand people. I was very critical also because the workforce was so dispersed and very different expectations as well from you know management headquarters to cabin crew somewhere thousands of kilometers away. So I, I, I fear you now. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, ask you what, what, what's next, Mark, for summer? What's, what, what, what should we look out for this year? I think we're, I mean, we're continuing building out the business and helping small merchants from where we are. I think it's very much the, the building out the ecosystem and really also, especially when you think about communication and so on, explain it to merchants that we were their partner for much more than we are today. 
So you shouldn't only, when you start a small business, you should not only turn to sum up to accept card payments, but also to run your business, grow your business, and basically help you with all all technology and all uh, all financial services that you might need as a small merchant. And I think that's a that's a that's something we started two three years ago, and that's something where we need to do much more to really get this into merchants' hands, heads and hands across the world. Yes, and particularly because you were so are so successfully successful in your core business where you started out. That's obviously you know, needs some needs a lot of communication, I'm sure, over the next few years. Mark, it's an absolute pleasure and a lightning, a lightning conversation, inspiring conversation uh, to hear from you this journey over the last 10 years. So much appreciated. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time, Mark. And uh, I wish you and Summer and all your 3,000 colleagues all the best. Thank you very much for having me. And maybe a quick commercial. We are hiring. So please check out our job pages. Um, we're always looking for good people across the world. Absolutely. And great company culture. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Take care. Thank you, Oliver.